Good morning. Let's pray real quickly. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to speak your word and for the opportunity of the study and blessing of your spirit in the preparation. I ask now that you would bless these words and help to make them fruitful by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our text today is going to be from John 6, 1 through 14, which is the, uh, the uh, feeding of the 5,000. This past summer when I was back east, I, I attended a service and the reading was Matthew 14, which is the same uh, story. Uh, all the Gospels have it. It's reported in all the Gospels, but I chose John for the reading because there's a little more discussion between Jesus and the disciples, and it's, there's a little more clarity, I think, in it. And um, the reason I chose to, to speak on that is because the sermon that day, I felt, kind of missed the point uh, of the power of this passage. It is one of the most powerful passages in, in the New Testament. Um, there was a lot of good, but a lot missing. He sort of took it as a general metaphor for how God cares for his people today and meets their needs. That we should not fear because God will always give us good things and care for us. And of course that's mostly true. God does care for us and all that we have comes from his hand. And scripture is always deeper than any single exposition. So despite any emphasis, there's always more. But is that the reason that this is the only miracle, not counting the birth and resurrection of Jesus that's reported in every gospel. If we had to pick just one lesson to take from these verses, does the explanation that, uh, that this miracle shows that God blesses us and takes care of our needs, is that the, the most important one, the one we should focus on? I don't think it is. And what I want to today, look at today is a threefold question. Is the metaphoric, symbolic reading of this text the best way to understand the passage? By that I don't mean, are such meanings there at all, but rather, if we had to emphasize the most significant reason, is a metaphor the one we would choose? Secondly, does this passage itself offer clues to its meaning and significance? And using that information, what should we make of it? Or at least, what points are so important that we simply can't ignore them without doing violence to the text? Finally, I'd like to ask if there's something in the modern world, in the very nature of the way we moderns see things by default, that would skew us towards an alternative and inferior reading of the text. Having just heard several sermons in Damon's series about why it's so challenging to believe uh, in a transcendent God in the modern world, I began to ask myself, how does this passage from John challenge us as moderns? For an Orthodox Christian, to rightly recognize it as a miracle, but reduce it to a sort of comforting metaphor shows how reluctant we are to challenge some of the modern assumptions about the way the world works. Or worse, how, how we can so easily take materialism and naturalism, that is the belief that there's nothing beyond the physical, what we can see and understand, that we could take that for granted and just say, that's the way things are, so let's fit scripture around it. Perhaps the, the reason that I took particular note of this reading that was given during the sermon is because I've heard some really bad readings of this miracle too. This was not a bad one, it just, I think it missed the, the biggest point. And I want to take a look at one of those misreadings in depth. But first, let's look through the passage while asking, what was Jesus trying to convey with this miracle? 
And how would the disciples and the 5,000 plus that were being fed, how would they have seen it? So to the text. I should actually read chapter 5 since it precedes these events and is filled with Jesus' claims about who he is and what his actions prove. But in the interest of time, we'll start with chapter 6. Verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was performing on those who were sick. We would probably tend to think of that passage as being more accurate if it said, because they saw that he was healing the sick. But the wording that's in in this translation is actually, I think, gives a better insight into why the healings were important. It wasn't just that, that people were healed or cared for, though that's important, particularly for the people being healed, but that these healings were a sign. So when it says they saw the signs he was performing on those who were sick, it kind of emphasizes that point. If one of the 5,000 were to tell a friend about being fed by Jesus, the response would probably be, who is this man? The focus would be who, or possibly in some instances why, like why is he doing this? But the question would probably not be how. Anyone could claim to be a prophet, but the question would have been, who are you to claim this authority and why should we believe what you say in the first place? In the modern world, our question would most likely be how. Since we know many of the physical laws of the universe, we might have replied to such a miracle with, wow, awesome sleight of hand. How'd you do that? We're focused on the how because, as moderns, we believe that if we know how something's done, that's all we need, or that's the most important thing. Life can be managed, conquered, enjoyed. If we can just figure out how things work, as Damon has pointed out, we believe that we just need raw information. In our, in our age, information is not connected to anyone. So, but this is not so for Jesus. He was healing the sick, usually by touching them and showing all those around him that he could back up his prophetic claims by his actions. Since the how in this case is both mysterious and miraculous, modern Western readers tend to push it away, push it away from the miracle itself, push away from the miracle itself, and either dismiss the story altogether or find some other way of dealing with it, like turning it into a, a metaphor about uh, how, how God deals with us and, and cares for us in a general, very general way. Of course, healing involves caring for those who are sick and, and undoing, at least temporarily, the effects of living in the fallen and decaying world. Feeding, likewise, has the same care at its heart. There's certainly with this, within this and all of Jesus' miracles an un- unbounded love for fallen man displayed in the miracles themselves. But reducing the miracle to just that robs it of its fullness and power and ultimately its significance. It's important to note that in these texts, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're beginning to see a progression for Jesus as the accounts of his life move forward towards their climax. Conquering disease, conquering sickness, conquering hunger, all on the road to conquering sin and with his own death and resurrection, conquering death. If I were to stop now, sorry I'm not, uh, just this should show us that the miraculous feeding was about far more than being fed literally or metaphorically by God. The feeding of the 5,000 is part of the answer about who Jesus is and whether he has the power to back up his claims. So continuing in verse 3, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was near, Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where do we buy bread? Where are we to buy bread so that these 
may eat. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a, a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? I'd like to focus on just a couple of the points here. There's a lot in this text um, that I can't get to or don't have the expertise for, but there's a couple of points that really stick out to me. As usual, the timing of this is not accidental. The Passover being near meant that people were gathering from all over Israel. So Jesus, the rightful king of Israel and of creation itself, would have used this opportunity to show who he was to a larger number of the Jewish people. As Passover progressed, they might begin to think of what was about to happen in the context of God's hand displayed in the power during the Exodus. In Philip's response, and Philip responded by saying, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. In Philip's response, we see a sort of a modern approach to the problem, I think. I guess that Philip was a sort of visionary in that way, though not in a good way. He answers the way we might, and that would be, well, if I take into account the logistics and do the math, it's easy to see that this is impossible. That's not a dig. It's just a fairly normal statement, uh, the, way, the way any human would react to something that seems impossible like that. Jesus pretty much ignores that response because it's focused on how. How could such a thing be done? In this case, how is not going to cut it. There's nothing in John's telling in this event that will satisfy the how question because that's not the question that matters. It's not ancient ignorance of physics that would cause the lack of detail about how fish, how five fish could feed, well, maybe up to 20,000 people. It's just that if Jesus is who he claims to be, the how is not important or maybe not even comprehensible to us. Philip needs to start thinking in terms of who. Who is Jesus and what has Philip been witnessing him do for these past months that should lead him to believe an answer was at hand. The second point that jumps out to me, here, Jesus, though knowing that he himself will, take, will do this miracle, involves his disciples in the process. I believe the primary point of the miracles is a proof of his power over creation, the one through whom all things were created, creating fish and bread from nothing. And just a side note, even though uh, this text doesn't say it, but sometimes this is called the multiplying of the fish, we shouldn't mistake this multiplying as anything less than creation ex nihilo from nothing. By the end, there were five to 10,000 fish that didn't previously exist anywhere on earth. That is from nothing, whether we start with zero or five. So what we're, what we're looking at here is really a miracle of creation from nothing. Anyway, Jesus makes a decided effort to bring the disciples into the process. This is God's way from the very beginning. We see it in Genesis, in the garden, and throughout scripture. Much is made of the disciples' lack of faith when the chips are down, but I think that Andrew, the second disciple in the passage we just read, his suggestion about the boy with the fish, in that, in that response there's a glimmer of the recognition that maybe by showing a little faith in the one who asked the question, that such faith will be multiplied and expanded and redeemed in Jesus' actions. So Andrew makes a suggestion that would, under normal circumstances, be scorned. But because of who Jesus is, Andrew's suggestion becomes the launching pad for Jesus' actions. 
now that we've seen a little bit about what's going on here, I think I'm ready to take a little detour uh, into the land of the heretical. I must admit that that hearing this bit of creative writing, which I'm about to share with you, is probably what set me up to react as strongly as I did to the sermon about God caring for our needs. This following interpretation is far worse and not supported in any way by the text, as I hope to show, but I think it would feel right for a modern mind to, to accept this interpretation as opposed to the miraculous God showing who he is, creating from nothing in, in Christ. I first heard this put forward by the Jesus Seminar. This is a group basically carrying on the work of people like Thomas Jefferson, whose desire it is to strip everything miraculous from Scripture. Thomas Jefferson actually wrote his own version of the Bible that took all of the miracles out. It's a daunting task to be sure, but they're trying. This alternative view doesn't say that the report was a lie, but rather that there is more reasonable and maybe a a non-supernatural explanation for this. They argue that Jesus' teaching and compassion inspired all of those present to give what they had. As the baskets were passed around, those who needed food could take it, and those who had plenty with them could share. So in the end, because of this sharing, there was enough for all. It sounds reasonable in some ways, but could that be what's really going on here? Though it doesn't hold up when the scriptures analyze what I'll call the Jesus as motivational speaker explanation is much more appealing to modern sensibilities than the Jesus the promised Messiah coming in power to redeem creation view for many reasons. It seems to be sort of religion-y with everyone catching the spirit and helping neighbor. I mean, after all, this seems to be why Jesus came, so maybe the crowd just got it. This view is borrowing from other clear biblical teaching about loving neighbor, but it's inserting it and with great hermeneutical violence, I might add, into the scriptural narrative that has no mention or undercurrent of anything like it. We see Jesus teaching the crowd, Jesus feeling compassion for them, Jesus showing his disciples and all present who he is, and most importantly, backing up that claim by what he does, or more precisely, by what he alone has the power to do. The neighborly love scenario is at best a modern romantic view of what the day was like, the suggestion that this scene resembled some sort of Coca-Cola commercial with everyone joining together and sharing, holding hands, and singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing, that's imported into the text by a modern sensibility. But why bother to take the trouble to make this what I think is a rather violent alteration to the text? Several things come to mind. First, this view finds appeal because it doesn't really shut the door on the Bible per se. We can leave it as a sort of ancient self-help book not really about a supernatural creator, but full of nice advice. Sort of like an ancient Google information repository for how to be loving and nice with a humanist moral center. And Jesus playing the role of Tony Robbins. Don't worry about all the miracle mumbo-jumbo. We're just, we're beyond that. We know that the world, we know how it works. But don't lose hope either. As long as you can find some helpful hints for fulfilled living, the Bible has a place in the modern world. Even most skeptics realize that the Bible has way too much historical gravity to just dismiss out of hand, so it's much easier to take, just take it over and change its meaning to fit a modern sensibility. Another appealing aspect of the Jesus as motivational speaker view of the modern world is that God is not in control. He merely inspires us to do good. We and our transformed actions are at the center of the story, and with the right inspiration, 
we can heal humanity and the planet. And so, of course, it doesn't surprise me in the research that I was doing uh, for this sermon to discover that there's a secular group with the name Feeding the 5,000. Its goal is to reduce food waste. That, that fits perfectly with modern sensibilities. We can make the world better on our own power and, and do double good by reducing waste and feeding the hungry. Of course, reducing waste and feeding the hungry are good things, but that's not what this miracle is about. To force the text into that box is a form of idolatry, a worshipful love of our own potential and our own self-sufficiency. Such goals, though, idolatrous, fit nicely with a modern, sort of demystified view of the world where we decide what's possible. And the irony, of course, is that once we remove God as creator and the very identity of truth and love from whom all good things spring, we have no moral duty to love or serve serve neighbor or to care for creation. The idea of loving neighbor might stand for a while, but ultimately will fall since only God can give us a moral obligation to love our neighbor. So as with all idolatry in the end, all that's hoped for dissolves as we turn away from God and towards our own ideas. Finally, the Jesus as motivational speaker model is soothing to the modern sensibility because it offers a way of seeing the world that's entirely eminent, entirely here and now. There's no transcendent to worry about, no mystery. It's all here. And because there's nothing beyond our vision, there's nothing beyond our grasp. It offers a form of control over our surroundings. Jesus' gift to the 5,000 is, by contrast, an act of love. As I suggested in previous sermons about love and control, this issue creeps into every element of life in the fallen world. It's the very basis for our fall and separation from God. All of God's actions come from love, and all of ours apart from God come from a desire to control. And so it is in this discussion as well. One of the most appealing elements in the non-miraculous reading for modern people is that it shows us a story we can fully understand. No mystery, nothing beyond our grasp, nothing beyond our control. Those points make, help make sense of the worst of the humanist views of this miracle. But their desire, is to make, their desire is to make scripture just one of the many tools we might use to remake the world in our image. But turning back to the church, why among Orthodox Christians would a pastor focus on the feeding of the 5,000 solely as a metaphor for God caring for us? I mean, that is in there, but why stop at that? Perhaps one appeal to that approach might be that it's a type of peace offering that takes the middle ground. We can believe in God, a true Bible, and acknowledge the miraculous nature of the event, but make it more palatable to modern sensibilities. After all, a caring spirit who illustrates love with colorful narratives is pretty comforting and non-confrontational. We can be spiritual with having to go through the fight against modern assumptions, assumptions that include the idea that only the material world exists, so miracles are out of the question. This approach would, would probably be not even conscious most of the time if, if it's preached, which is why I found myself so concerned. It's a sort of a conciliatory approach to living in the modern world, perhaps thought of as giving some helpful words of encouragement after a tough week. But the metaphorical interpretation could not have been the way that Jesus meant this miracle to be understood. It could not have been the way the disciples understood it, and it could not have, have been the way anyone there thought of it before the modern era. Worse, it reduces this powerful miracle, unequaled in human history, that is creating something before the eyes of 20,000 witnesses out of nothing. It reduces that 
to mere comfort in an abstract expression of love. Or maybe worse yet, it recasts the miracle as a first century community building exercise. For us as followers of Christ, to submit to this truce with modernity has grave consequences. It's important to be able to recognize and consciously put aside modern prejudices that would make this miracle and Jesus himself infinitely less than they truly are. So, having pushed back a little bit against bad readings, let's conclude with the last part of the text and put it into context. Continuing from verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. With that last sentence, by the way, case closed. I mean, just saying. It's surprising that anybody could take a miracle this powerful and this um, well-described and come up with anything but the miraculous nature of it. The people who were fed got it, even if we sometimes don't. This wasn't about merely being fed. It was about who was feeding them in the miraculous manner of the occurrence. A couple of quick additional points from these verses. This whole event would, without question, bring to the mind of those in the crowd the exodus and the feeding with manna in the desert. They are not exactly wandering, but they're on a long journey to go to celebrate Passover. So they don't have the means to supply their needs. God God does, just as he did with manna in the desert. Wait, you might say. I thought this passage was not supposed to be about God caring for and feeding his people. But of course we do see God caring for his people all the time. It is about that as well. But if we want to make that the over if we want to make the the feeding of his people the overarching theme of the text, then let's make it literal, not metaphorical, and apply it to those for whom it's intended. God is caring for these people on this day, two thousand years ago, in a supernatural way for the very specific reason of proving that he is walking among them and that he has come performing miracles. If we really want to take a symbolic reading of the event, then, instead of trying to declare a peace treaty with the modern world by denying the supernatural, we should use the symbols that the author John has provided for us. We see in verse 13 that Jesus' disciples are are tasked, tasked with gathering God's visible blessing, the remaining bread, into 12 baskets obviously representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This new manna event shows the fulfillment of Scripture in Jesus, who has come in power to gather up and save the 12 tribes, and eventually the whole of creation, back into God's care, so that nothing will be lost. That's a symbolism that works on its own and harmonizes with the text as a whole. So we see in the text a literal a literal uh, interpretation that allows us to see God feeding his people, but he's feeding those people that day for the purpose of showing who he is. And we see, I think, a better symbolic reading, if we want to take a symbolic reading. We see that in the way the Old and New Covenant are brought together with 
the feed, with the manna in the desert and the feeding of the 5,000. So to conclude, I think my passion for this sermon has been to argue against making the miracle into merely a comforting metaphor that applies to us as we see fit. Or worse yet, by turning the text into a sort of humanist motivational speech with Jesus as the one who inspires us to be our best. I know that I'm preaching to the choir, literally, on this point. But it's still, I think, instructive to work through this and through these issues as a way of seeing how the modern world fight, fights against faith in a transcendent God. As Damon spent many weeks going through, there's something about the thoughts, the ways, the prejudices of the modern world that can make it a bit of a challenge sometimes to maintain faith as a Christian. We don't even see those challenges often, but they're there in the background, and they can tend to influence the way that we interpret everything that we see and read, including texts, uh, including scripture. I kind of intended this as a a sort of a follow-up to Damon's series on why it's so challenging to believe in God in the modern world. But even if we were to make symbolism the primary point, then this connection to the man in the desert and the 12 tribes of Israel is what really cries out from the text and still points to the miraculous. The feeding of the 5,000 is much more than God showing us that he cares for his people, either then or today, by giving them bread. He does care for his people. He does feed us. Every good blessing we have from him is from him. But it, there's more than that in this text. That view puts the, fo- the view of, of turning this text into a, uh, a symbol that God cares for his people by feeding them puts the focus on us and the fulfillment of our needs at the center of the story. Instead, the focus should be on the one who bends creation to his will, on Jesus miraculously providing for his people Israel and providing for them in a way that they would have understood only God had provided in the past. We should not really merely be comforted by this account. We should be awestruck by it. Here is the new covenant in the flesh, the redeemer of creation, showing Israel by healing and feeding them that the redemption of creation itself was at hand. Jesus was breaking through into the everyday world that they thought they knew and he was making the impossible possible. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your miraculous intervention into what we think we understand, what we think of as the normal world. It is still ruled by you. It is still cared for by you. We thank you that you have sent your son here to give to us the gift of your spirit and to reunite us with creation, to redeem creation and to bring us back to you, all of creation, not just us, but all of creation. Pray that you would watch over us and keep our thoughts in you. Help us to fight against what the world does to tear down the beauty of your miraculous intervention. Give us strength. Allow us always to be awestruck by the power of your goodness and mercy in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.